So uh, what did we do last week? Last week we talked about Jesus is the forgiver of our sins. We saw that through the passage of the healing of the paralytic. We saw that through Jesus sitting and having fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. And and we saw that, that Jesus is the forgiver of sins because he is able, because he is willing, and because he is needed. All three uh, of those aspects are part of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. Now Jesus continues in his ministry, and we're noticing that more and more conflict is showing up around Jesus. Conflict is mounting because Jesus' ministry is starting to look strange to the teachers of the law of the day and the practicers of of the, the, the Torah of the day. Jesus is not what they were expecting. And he is doing things like forgiving sins and, 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 uh, and, and eating with tax collectors and sinners that, quite frankly, is disturbing to many in the day. And they are starting to ask questions, and their questions are getting a little sharper each time. And the reason that these questions are getting sharper is because Jesus is showing that he is bringing something brand new into the world. Something that is a dramatic change from what they know from the past. That there is a new age, a new reality that Jesus is bringing. And so when we look at this passage today, the the key point, the main point that I want us to grasp is that the gospel has the power to radically change us. And it is that radical power to change that is starting to cause controversy with the the people of the day who are watching Jesus. But the gospel is shown here to have the power to radically change us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Is that? Is that something that you are experiencing? Day to day. Do we, do we need this reminder of, of the power of the gospel as we are living in a world that we seem to be uh, moving from the, the center to the edges? You, you, you see, when we recognize that the power of the gospel has, is the power to radically change us, it is going to help us make sense of why we are changing from the way the world is. It is going to explain why we find ourselves in increasing conflict with the way that the world is. But it is also going to remind us that the reason that we are changing is because within us is a power that is so much more powerful than anything this world can possibly imagine. Are you experiencing the gospel as power? That is what I want us to dwell upon today. In fact, as I was looking at this this passage and dwelling upon what Jesus is saying when he's talking about new wine and old wineskins, when he is talking about uh, they cannot be in mourning, they cannot be in fasting because the bridegroom has come, Jesus is actually declaring that the gospel is a revolution upon the world. 
That those who are in the gospel have gone through a dramatic revolution where what, what was before and what is after almost lack a straight line. Jesus is declaring that the gospel is the power of a revolution. And yet many of us, I think, live with the gospel much more tame, much more conformed, much more palatable much less abrasive upon our lives and even the lives of the, in the world around us than is the true gospel that Jesus is saying is unleashed upon the world. So as we go through this passage, I want us to dwell upon three revolutions that must happen to a disciple of Jesus, to someone who has received the gospel. Now, the, the, the way that these revolutions are laid out in our text is really the opposite order of how we experience them in our own lives. But the, the reason they're laid out in the order that they are laid out is, is kind of in the order that they are presented in the ministry of Jesus. So I actually have a, an outline that starts at the bottom and moves to the top. Because when we get to the end of this, you'll say, well, I went from the first to the second to the third, not the third first. That, that's why it's that way. So, uh, but I got to go in the order of the text, all right? So the first revolution that we find in the text, uh, the first revolution that must happen to a disciple of Jesus is this, that we are filled with joy. The first revolution of the disciple is that they are filled with joy. And here we are going to be looking at the first uh, two verses of the, of the Mark passage, 2.18 and 2.19. So what we have here is, is Jesus, uh, we don't exactly know where he is, but, but we're going to assume it's somewhere uh, briefly after his time with Levi and, and the, the meal. And uh, two groups of people who don't usually show up together uh, are, are observing uh, Jesus' ministry there's the disciples of John the Baptist, and there are the, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees and, and, and John's disciples come to Jesus, and they recognize that Jesus is not leading his disciples in fasting. There is no evidence that the disciples of Jesus are participating in fasting, which John's disciples and the Pharisees were very known for, for fasting. In fact, the Pharisees were fasting at least twice a week at this time. And John's disciples were fasting because John's ministry was, was announcing that the kingdom is coming. And so he is calling people to repentance. And fasting is a major part of acting in repentance. And so the Pharisees and John, the Baptist disciples, look at Jesus and they're like, why is Jesus not getting on the same page with the rest of us? Why is fasting not a part of Jesus' ministry? So we have to understand what the fasting means because we, we, we don't uh, interpret this passage as a, as a passage particularly about fasting. Okay, Fasting is something that is still appropriate for Christians to participate when the Spirit leads them to fast. This is not a passage abolishing fasting or, or, or being against fasting. What is being discussed here is the why of the fasting that is being talked about, all right? So John the Baptist and the Pharisees, why are they fasting? Well, John the Baptist is fasting because he is trying to prepare people for the coming judgment of God. He is trying to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. 
Now, the Pharisees are doing something different but still similar. They are trying to hasten the kingdom of God through their righteousness. The the Pharisees had this belief that if they completely fulfilled Torah and they did everything in the Old Testament commandments and they did it perfectly, that then God would establish the new kingdom as a reward, basically, of their faithfulness and their righteousness. All right? So both the Pharisees and John the Baptist, though not doing it for exactly the same reason, are are in a sense in the same orientation. They are both looking forward to the coming of the kingdom and trying to prepare or bring about that big change. All right? So in in that situation, fasting is this act of preparing or hastening. And so you, you would see in the, in the Pharisees and in John's disciples evidence of a sobriety and a seriousness and a glumness as they are fasting. But then we look at verse 18, and in verse 18, Jesus, uh, uh, actually, yeah, yeah, uh, you know, verse 19, um, we see that, um, well, no, we'll say verse 18. That's fine. We don't need to look at verse 19 yet. It, it, so so what, what is happening, though, is Jesus doesn't look like that. Jesus' ministry is different. Jesus' ministry doesn't look glum. Jesus' ministry doesn't look uh, uh, downtrodden. Jesus' ministry does not look sad-hearted. Jesus' ministry looks completely different. In fact, in Luke chapter 7, we're told of what kind of the report on the street is for Jesus' ministry. We're told this. This is from Jesus. It says, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. That's fasting. And you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So so here's another way of saying Jesus is looking different than the other religious people of the day, right? And he's looking a lot different. Jesus is saying that you are are seeing me eating and drinking, and you're calling me a a drunkard and a um, a, a, a party hound. You're calling me a glutton and a drunkard, right? Now, now was Jesus a drunkard? No, that's slander, right? But... That slander is a twisting of something that is true of Jesus. Jesus was, as his own words admit, uh, someone who came eating and drinking, right? So Jesus is somebody who has life and fun and joy that is visible in his ministry. He, He looks fun. He looks like life is good. He looks like somebody you want to join the party with, right? He is not the party pooper, right? This is is what Jesus is, so much so that Jesus has a reputation of being such a good partier that they, they accuse him of drunkenness. Do you see Jesus like that? Is that ever an image in your mind that comes to you as you think about who our Savior is? Do you see your Savior 
as a great guy at the party, as somebody fun, as somebody whose presence is enjoyable, as someone who smiles, as someone who loves life. That's what the Pharisees and John's disciples were so confused about. They're like, you're supposed to look serious and sad. And you're supposed to make your disciples look serious and sad. And they don't. So what's wrong with you? Why aren't you on this page? So what what is the difference? Well, verse 19 is Jesus' answer. He says, Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying, my disciples don't fast because I brought the party. I brought the wedding. We're having a good time. That's what, that's what I am here. I'm, I'm not preparing people for the judgment. I'm preparing people for God's grace. I'm declaring that the kingdom has come, not trying to bring it in. I am the joy of the kingdom. And the kingdom is joyful. And so he uses this picture of a wedding, which is a classic picture in the Old Testament, for a picture of of God's kingdom or of the age of salvation. I mean, Jesus is saying, I've come to bring forgiveness, not sadness. And so what do we have with Jesus? We have celebration, not mourning, describing his ministry. The whole idea of of preparing is incompatible. The whole idea of fasting to bring in the kingdom is incompatible with the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He is the bridegroom. Can you imagine how absolutely unacceptable it would be to have a a wedding and to be a, a groomsman and to go up to the groomsman and lay on him all the, the sad, sorry things in the world? <laughs> no, he, he's there to party. You don't, you don't say to the groomsman, oh, I can't party right now, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm fasting. I'm, uh, I'm, 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 trying to, I'm trying to grieve right now. I can't really enjoy this party. That would insult the bridegroom. Like, I brought you to the party. Loosen up, right? And so... Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom. It is incompatible to be in the frame of mourning when you're in my presence. Now, this is actually a staggering revelation because the the, the description that Jesus gives himself as the bridegroom has an Old Testament precedent that is pretty hard to miss. When, when, when the bridegroom is spoken of in, in, in the people of God, in the, in the people of Israel, there's only one person that ever is called the bridegroom. In Isaiah 54, 5, we are told who the bridegroom is. He says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. You see, the role of bridegroom in a spiritual sense, was owned by God. That's that's a title for God's covenantal relationship to Israel. And here we have Jesus 
saying, I'm the bridegroom. Once again, we have Jesus using language that is starting to reveal that Jesus understands himself not as a prophet, not as a man, not as a healer, but as God come in the flesh. Because he is assuming things that only God can assume. Last week, he assumed the right to forgive. This week, he is assuming that he is the bridegroom of Israel. And so again, we have Jesus' self-awareness coming through these metaphors. So, so what? What, what? what about all of this? How, does this? how does this matter to us? Jesus is saying that his disciples cannot be glum when they are with the bridegroom. That the, that the disciples are to be the opposite, which is joyful. Disciples are to be joyful. Now, I recognize as we get into this topic, that there's a whole lot of issues that get in the way of us experiencing joy. And I do not want to make light of, of mental health issues. I do not want to act like you should be grinning and smiling in all circumstances. I mean, Jesus wept. Jesus felt all of the emotions. Jesus definitely felt sad. Jesus definitely mourned. And there is nothing illegitimate about those emotions. And there's no reason for for you to say, well, because I feel that way, that I'm not a Christian. And and the mental health issues, I mean, there, there are times where feeling joyful is chemically being robbed from us. And it is it is it is important to deal with that through therapy, and and if necessary, through through medication. But at the same time, we need to recognize that the principle of the disciple and, and and, and, and kind of their default emotion is that we should be known for joy. And for some of us, we need to be reminded that we need to be pursuing joy, that we need to be living for joy, that our default should be joy. We should be people not known for anger, but encouragement. We should be people not known for negativity, but hopefulness. We should be known not for fear, but for security. Not for anxiety, but for serenity. You see, the idea of us being in the presence of Jesus should make our emotions gravitate towards hope and joy and love. The presence of Jesus should be bringing us into the presence, into the party, into the wedding. And we need to recognize, even as we live in a difficult world, even as we live in difficult circumstances, that we always have reason for joy. Luke 10.20 was a verse that Timothy Keller, who passed away just last week, held on to as he was in the final stages of dying of pancreatic cancer. I know that he was in pain. I know that he was suffering. I know that he was miserable by any human standard. And yet Luke 10.20, he shared with his friend John Piper, was giving him delight. And here's what Luke 10.20 said to him. 
Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And that is always true for the Christian. The reality of the Christian is that your name is written in heaven. It is in the book of life. It has been scrawled by the hands who bled for us that we are in heaven. And that is, according to Jesus, something that is always worthy of rejoicing. Do you have this joy? Do you have this joy? I think it's important to, uh, uh, to consider another verse in this respect, and that's the uh, passage in Galatians chapter 5 on, on the fruit of the Spirit. We are told that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and it goes on. But don't miss this. Right there, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Listen, joy is not this optional thing for the Christian. It's not this cherry on top if everything in your life is going well. Joy is a diagnostic of whether you are rooted in the Spirit. Joy is a diagnostic. If joy is not a fruit of your life, what are you rooted in? Now, the remedy of this is not guilt. The remedy of this is not for you to be feeling bad about yourself if you're not feeling joy, if you feel disconnected from this idea that we should be joyful. The remedy is not guilt. The remedy is Lilo. The remedy is living in and living out the good news. The remedy is letting the truth of the gospel that your names are written in heaven be pounded against your mournful, sad, anxious, fearful, angry heart. Listen, heart. Your name is written in heaven. Rejoice. When you think about living in the gospel, many of us, our, our mind immediately goes to the cross, and that's good. But there are many images of living in that we need to draw to our mind. And here's one I would suggest if joy is hard for you. Dwell upon the hug of the prodigal son by his father. The father runs in an embarrassing way, runs with glee to come to his son who was lost to wrap his arms around in an extravagant demonstration of love and joy. That is the gospel. That is living in the gospel is the father's arms are just wrapping around you. Tears of joy are falling upon you from him. Bring that image to mind. Fight your grief with the joy of the Father's hug. 
Beloved, in Christ, you are in the feast. Let the world see there is something different. Why are you filled with joy? Because there are people like John's disciples and the Pharisees today. They will notice. The second revolution, though, the second revolution of, 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 um, that, that must happen as a disciple of Jesus is the revolution of conversion. The revolution of conversion. Jesus, after sharing this first parable of the, of the wedding, he shares two additional parables to illustrate more this radical change, this radical revolution that he has brought through the gospel. He, he, he talks about a new, uh, a new cloth patching an old garment, and he talks about new wine and old wineskins. Now, it's easy to recognize the, the, the common through line of both of these parables, and that is that New wine is incompatible with old wineskins, and old cloth is incompatible with a new cloth patch. There's an incompatibility, just like there was an incompatibility with being a mourner and a faster in a wedding, there's an incompatibility with the, old, the new cloth on an old garment and with new wine in the old wineskin. So the idea again here is this dramatic incompatibility. Now, in these parables, it's pretty clear that the new wine and the new cloth uh, represent Jesus. Jesus is the new wine. Jesus is the, the new cloth. And we need to know well here when we say that Jesus is the new wine or the new cloth. The new is Jesus. It's not fundamentalism. The new is not religion. The new is not conservatism. It's not uh, moralism. It's not anti-scientism. It's not wokeism. What is new is Jesus. Why do I say that? Because I, I spent this week uh, a bit of my time reading several deconversion stories, which are becoming very popular, to explain to everybody why I am no longer a follower of Jesus. And the reasons people are no longer a follower of Jesus is that they don't like fundamentalism. They don't like religion. They don't like conservatism. They don't like the anti-science that they've heard at church. They don't like the wokeism or the anti-wokeism or whatever. And what breaks my heart is none of that, none of that is what is Jesus. Jesus is not fundamentalism. Jesus is not wokeism. Jesus is not uh, anti-sciencism. All of those things are things that we have attached to Jesus. Those are actually old garments that we're trying to sneak in as new cloth. And that is not what the new is. The new is Jesus. Here at Renew EPC, we are aiming to focus on Jesus and Jesus alone. The reason that we are part of the denomination of the EPC is, I really believe, our motto. Our motto of our church is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. This is, I believe, a breath of fresh air for all of the conflicts that we have heard happen and divide churches. In essentials, in the things that we must believe to believe the gospel, we demand unity. 
But in all the other things about how to be a Christian or what we think is wise and good in this world, those are non-essentials. And there we offer liberty. Our focus is on Jesus. Our focus is on the new. And so for anyone that is, that is wondering the reason that when our affirmation of faith Oh, we're way ahead of, I don't know, maybe we're not. The, the reason that we are uh, reading this affirmation of faith each week is to show what we believe are those essentials. What we believe are the things that must be held to be uh, uh, in the church. These are not essentials that are unique to us as a congregation. They are the, the things that the churches have believed across continents and countries and centuries. That is what we are affirming as essentials. So when we talk about uh, what we believe at Renew, Renew is not a fundamentalist church. Renew is also not a liberal or progressive church. Renew is a church that focuses on Jesus. And what that means is that the Jesus that we focus on is the Jesus that is revealed in Scripture. And sometimes the Jesus that's revealed in Scripture is a conservative Jesus. Sometimes the Jesus that's revealed in Scripture is a liberal Jesus. So sometimes there will be times where you don't like the Jesus <laughs> if, if you're trying to attach Jesus to an old garment. We want you to know Jesus. So... What is the old cloth? What is the old, old wineskin in these, in these parables? Well, most uh, directly in context, in context it's, the, it's the religion of the Old Testament. So is, is Jesus against the Old Testament? Is Jesus against the Torah? No, that's not what Jesus is communicating in these parables. He is communicating not that he is against the Old Testament or against the Torah, but that he has come to fulfill the Old Testament and fulfill the Torah so that in fulfilling it, there is an incompatibility with going back and living as if the fulfillment never happened, right? So, so that maybe an illustration of this is uh, you go from dating to marriage, right? There's some continuity there. Hopefully the person you marry is the person you were dating, but once you go to marriage, not that you throw away all the wonderful memories and all the wonderful lessons that you got in dating, but you don't live like you're dating anymore. You live like you're married. There's a, a dramatic change. There is a fulfillment of the, the relationship that comes with marriage. In Jesus, then, the new has come. The new has come, and so to insist on, on living in the old as if Jesus has not come is, is the problem that Jesus is addressing. Now, are these parables only applicable to Judaism? I don't think so. I think that there is a universal principle in, in what Jesus is communicating through these old and new parables. And basically, it applies in this way. That any way in this world, any way, any belief, any system in this world where Jesus is not Lord is considered the old. Is considered the old wineskin. Is considered the old garment. Uh, I, I bring into this what, what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. 
where he says to, to the pagans, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here, here Paul is showing that there is a similar dynamic between the, the, the world as the old and the gospel. We cannot be conformed to the world. We must be transformed by the renewal of our mind in the gospel. And so it's not simply Judaism that we're talking about. It's, it's any of the old ways, any of the places of our life where Jesus is not Lord, that Jesus would say, that is what I have come to replace. So, the key of, this, of these couple parables is that we cannot have the new wine and the old wineskin, right? We cannot have the new wine, which is Jesus, and the old wineskin. Why? Because they are incompatible. They are completely incompatible. They are, they are so incompatible that they will destroy one another. Jesus says, if someone does try and put an untrunk cloth on an old garment, what will happen? It will, it will shrink and it will tear and it will make a tear that is worse than it was in the beginning. If you put new wine into an old wineskin, all of the fermentation and the gases that come from that wine aging will press against that old wineskin, which has lost all of its elasticity, and it will burst. And I think I even had a picture of the... Uh, uh, of, a, of actually a, a modern-day wine silo breaking open. I don't know how that happened, but tens of thousands of gallons of wine burst open a, this, this steel uh, drum in, in uh, Spain, which just kind of shows you the, the power of these uh, uh, wines in these containers. But the idea is a dramatic picture of tearing and bursting, and the result is if we try and put these things together, we destroy that's the result, is destruction. So I, I think there are two truths that, that we really have to draw from, from this parable as we, as we talk about the power of the gospel to radically change us. The first is, the gospel is not a patch. The gospel is not a patch. It cannot be contained in the old. Whether the old is Judaism or the old is your pre-converted self or your pre-converted beliefs, your pre-converted ideology. The, the gospel cannot be a patch. It cannot be contained in the old. The new tears and puts pressure on whatever is old. That's what the gospel does. The gospel will continue to put pressure on whatever has not repented. Whatever has not bowed the knee to the lordship of Jesus, the pressure of the new wine will force against it. The cloth will start tearing at that place, and it will be very uncomfortable. At the same time, the old, by its nature, pulls away and expels the new. The old does not want the new messing with it. The old ways do not want the changes of Jesus' lordship upon it. And so it tries to expel the wine. 
There, there's a, a classic example of this in, in the days of our founding fathers. Thomas Jefferson had a lot of old that he was very committed to, that he thought was new. He thought it was new and brilliant thinking. He thought his old was newer than, than the Bible. It, that's, that's what he thought. But he still wanted to have the Bible. But he couldn't believe in the supernatural. Because his, his old belief said the supernatural was not possible, was not true, was outdated. And so he literally took his Bible and cut out every miracle so that he could have a Bible that he could accept. I mean, this is a perfect illustration of the old cannot tolerate what it cannot accept about the new. It will literally cut it out. It will literally expel it. But what really happens is destruction. Jefferson has destroyed the word. It no longer has the authority over him that the word is supposed to have. And the word is now silent where it needs to speak. This is the, the, the Jefferson Bible is a, is, a, um, is a phenomenon that I think we all do. We all take passages, we all take teachings, we all take aspects of Jesus that don't fit with the way we want to be in the world. And we don't listen to them. Or we expel them. Or we de-church ourselves. So I have an application question. This is just for you to meditate on. Do you feel torn regarding your belief in Jesus? Do you feel torn regarding your belief in Jesus? And a second related question, are you expelling any parts of his word to make belief easier? Are you expelling any part of his word to make belief easier? These two questions pose from the parable a third. If these are true, do you know for sure that you're not an old wineskin? Do you know for sure that you are not an old wineskin? Sorry. Have you really put your faith in the Jesus of the Bible? Because what these parables are telling us is that there is no halfway, there is no mixture. The only way that we can have Jesus is if we are truly converted to Jesus. The power of the gospel radically changes us because the power of the gospel calls upon us the revolution of personal conversion. We must convert ourselves into the kingdom. We cannot simply walk by the kingdom. We cannot simply intersect the kingdom. We have to convert ourselves into the kingdom. We must become new wineskins. As the last part of, that, of the verse says, new wine is for new wineskins. And so that is the third revolution. The third revolution of the gospel is that we must be made new. Now, the last part, 22b, really started troubling me this week. 
It says, new wine is for fresh wineskins, or new wine is for new wineskins. As I really thought about that verse, there were two unsettling questions that affected me. The first is, what happens to the new wine when it comes to a world of old wineskins? Jesus is the new wine. What does it mean that Jesus comes to a world of old wineskins? And the second question is more pressing for us personally, and that is this. How can an old wineskin become new? How can an old wineskin become new? For this verse to have any hope to us, is, 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 it has to be the truth that somehow old wineskins can be made new, but there is no thing in this world that reverses oldness. Sorry, I'm looking at some of you. I hate to tell you, the makeup only goes so far. <laughs> Nothing reverses oldness. How does old become new? And yet that is what this parable says has to happen for us to have Jesus. Old wineskins cannot make themselves new. We're very much in the territory of another conversation that Jesus had with another Pharisee in the Gospel of John, where he says in John chapter 3, these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Those are the same troubling words. Flesh cannot make itself spirit. We must be born again, according to Jesus in the Gospel of John, to be made new. God's Spirit is needed to make us new. We, we must be born again. So let's go back to that first question, that first unsettling question. We, we did skip a verse in our, in our um, discussion of this passage. We skipped verse 20, which now I want to look at. It says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Look, look at those words, taken away. How, how many weddings have you seen the groom just taken away? That, that, that doesn't happen at weddings. The grooms aren't taken away from, from, from the party. But Jesus says that he, as the bridegroom, will be taken away. And the words taken away are very violent. They're, they're forceful. In fact, they, they result in what Jesus says is a time where the disciples will fast, will mourn, because at that time they will be very sad. So this taking away of the bridegroom is a description of the terrible event that Jesus has ahead of him, which is that he will be taken away and put upon the cross. Jesus is providing for us in this short passage a prediction of his passion. Now with that, consider, consider what 22 says again. If someone does put new wine in old wineskins, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. Jesus is saying that he is the bridegroom that will be taken away. 
Jesus is the new wine. And the old wineskins are going to take control of him. This, this, this parable about the wineskins reveals to us something so hard. Jesus came knowing he would be destroyed. Jesus came to us and gave us his joy knowing he would be taken away from the wedding. Jesus knew that the old wineskins would try and expel him. Why? Because in the gospel, here is what actually happened. In his destruction, he also destroyed the old wineskins. In Jesus' destruction, in in his wine being destroyed, he also destroyed the old wineskin. He took away the old so that he could make us new. And how does he do that? that? That's the gift of his resurrection. In his resurrection, he gave us his Holy Spirit. And that's why Pentecost is such a celebration, because the the, the happening at Pentecost is the gift of Jesus making us new wineskins by giving us his spirit. As we were were told from Ezekiel, uh, this is what has happened because of the resurrection, because of Jesus' giving himself to destruction. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The reason that we can receive the wine of Jesus is because Jesus also provides us the spirit who makes us new. We become new wineskins because Jesus purchased us the gift of the spirit. So there are three revolutions. We must be filled with joy, we must experience conversion, and we must be made new. Let me end with some application questions. Are you struggling with joy? Are you struggling with believing all that Jesus is and all that he says? Are you living according to the ways of the world? Are you sure that you are a new wineskin? There is one answer to all of these questions. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives you the fruit of joy. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives new birth. The Holy Spirit is the one that converts us to Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one that roots us in joy. So how? Do we claim the Holy Spirit? How do we receive the Holy Spirit? Jesus says in Luke eleven thirteen, 13, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Beloved, if I have put a finger on any struggle in your relationship with Jesus in this message, Jesus says, call out to the Heavenly Father to give the Holy Spirit to you, to fight the fight 
to join the kingdom, to be made new. Ask, and the Spirit will be given to you. Amen.